Many thanks to uh, my friend Sean for his uh, transparency and sharing a really powerful story of the reality of loss, living in a fallen world, and beauty. Uh, what he shared speaks to not only the song the choir just sang so wonderfully, but speaks as well to membership, the value of walking through life together. If I could encourage you who are young in the room, go deep with people, walk. You need one another, we need each other. And this is a good word toward that end, so uh, thank you, Sean, uh, for that. Uh, we're moving from all that has happened already that's so beautiful into trying to understand how we live in a beautiful and fallen world as people of hope. We have a calling to share the hope that is ours with others, to actively share. And many of us don't know how to do that well. I want to pray that we get, gain some understanding this morning. So let's take a moment, we'll pray together, and then we'll begin in the text from Acts 17. Father, thank you for the beauty of the world, the beauty of the sunrise this morning, the beauty of uh, seasons that change. Not only uh, season change in uh, fall to winter to spring to summer, but seasons of loss and seasons of additive, as Sean offered to us. I pray, Father, now that uh, you would teach us to walk with one another through seasons and to walk with our neighbors through seasons as people of hope. Thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, when we are called, though we are called to share our faith actively in the world, we are explicitly not called to kind of unscrew somebody's head and just pour Bible in and call that witness. It's not okay. And yet that's often what happens. And the reason it's not okay is because our calling is to be nothing less than the presence of Jesus in the world, and Jesus didn't do that. Jesus walked with people, right? That's his name, Emmanuel. God is with us, walking with us through cancer walking with us through promotions, walking with us when there's a, a shooting in Las Vegas or in a bar in Florida, walking with us when there's a fire that torches a town in California. God with us, and if we are the Prince of Christ, we're called to be then with one another, to be with people right where they're at, and that's tricky. It's hard to do. There's two kind of ways to fall off the wagon here when it comes to being with people. One is what I call uh, Bible-only view. The other is what I call culture-only view. Bible-only view draws from the Old Testament uh, where we read in the Old Testament that God's people are told to go in and wipe out other cultures. Remember? We talked about this a few weeks ago. We talked about uh, the question, uh, why is God portrayed with such anger in the Old Testament? And there was this understanding that God's intent was to set up a nation, a theocracy, through which... Uh, justice and peace and prosperity and beauty would shine in utter distinction to everything else going on in the ancient Near East at the time, which was characterized entirely by oppression, slavery, violence, poverty, and ugliness. And God said, no, we're going to do it differently. So go in, clean house, destroy every idol. And then that mindset was actually quoted by Paul for particular reasons in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, 
Uh, and in that text, we read, come out from among them and be separate. And that little verse has been kind of yanked out of its own context and created a, what I call a Bible-only mindset, the result of which is this. Everything in the world is suspect. So kind of get out of the world. Take your kids out of uh, public schools. Don't let them ever get tainted by secular music, secular movies. Like we, we withdraw because everything's suspect. Movies, music, theater, dance, certain foods and drinks, all suspect, come out, be separate. Now, ironically, uh, when this is actually lived out, it's never, no one ever fully withdraws, or I should say rarely. Like, for example, among that legalistic crowd, football's okay, right? Will be today, as are all professional sports. Like, you can, you can hate culture, but not the Sounders. You can't hate the Sounders. <laughs> Stock market's okay. Internet's okay. Burning fossil fuel's okay. But culture's bad. Well, there's a little bit of hypocrisy there, but that's not even the point, right? Uh, the problem with this mindset is we end up neither in the world nor of the world. And then when the pendulum swings over here to the other side, to this culture-only view, this view declares Christ has the capacity truly to redeem all things. Titus 1.15. Hey, to the pure, all things are pure. And this view sees the gospel as generous. We don't need to go in and destroy stuff because God redeems everything. And, 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 and so within this model, we understand that idols exist in cultures because of the deep longings of the human soul. We're lonely, so we have idols of sexuality. We're, we're living painful lives, so we have idols of self-medication. We're afraid of the future, so we have idols of materialism and greed. We're afraid of the others, so we have idols of racism and nationalism. But this view over here says that um, uh, these idols, we don't destroy them. Instead, we help people see that this idol is rooted in a longing. What people really long for is Christ. So, so we, we move into the culture, we know the culture, we're literate regarding the culture, but we use the culture to point people to Christ. Now, this view is by far the prevailing view at Bethany, right? We're not, generally, we're not afraid of culture here. Most of you know more uh, top 40 songs than I do, and you know the movies, and we, go, we have Academy Award parties, and we're culturally literate, but the problem over here often is we know the cultural idols, but we don't know God well enough to use the culture to point people to Christ. Does that make sense? So, so over here, we're in the world, but we're also of the world. We know the cultural idols so well that there are idols too. <laughs> so, so neither of these are healthy, and we're looking for a third way, no surprise, for some of you have been around here a while. And the, and the third way is rooted in three truths that I'm going to articulate here that help us move between these Bible-only, culture-only uh, imbalances. First truth, we're going to go quickly here this morning, God is already at work in every human heart. So when you meet somebody, uh, kind of do away with this notion that, oh, this person hates God, doesn't know anything, is just this pure, dark heart, and it's up to me to unscrew the head, pour a little light in there so the light can begin to shine. No, listen, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says this. God has placed eternity in the hearts of everybody. 
Romans 2, verses 14 and 15 says, even if you don't know the law, you're offended when somebody sleeps with your wife. Why is that? Like, if you don't know the Ten Commandments, why are you bummed? It's because it's there. It's in you. Do you see? Like, we're offended by adultery. We're, we're, we're offended by the death of innocent people. Everyone in the world, almost everyone, longs for a world of justice, not oppression. Peace, not war. A world where everyone has enough rather than a few holding half the wealth while billions starve. Everyone rejoices the beauty of creation. That's why when people walk around Green Lake and, and, and you see a group of people pausing and looking up, they're not waiting for the rapture. They're, they're looking at like an eagle or something like that. And you should look up too. Everyone wonders why life is too short, why good people die. So, so the, 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 this, is, this is the world that we live in. When 9-11 happened, uh, I took my daughter down to the uh, Seattle Center and there was this big uh, uh, like memorial at the fountain there at the center. And then, and then one, exactly one year later, uh, the Seattle Symphony performed Mozart's Requiem. It was a, like the Requiem was performed around the world in every time zone. And uh, so we, we performed it and free tickets were offered, but there was, the demand was so high they moved out of the uh, symphony hall, Benaroya, and they moved it to uh, uh, Safeco Field, right? And there were like 30,000 people here for Mozart's Requiem. Uh, and, and I mean, everybody's there, atheists and believers and fundamentalists and, and uh, Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists are there in their saffron robes and Muslims in, in, with their headgear. Listen, it's all, they're all there. And, and when, when uh, the symphony cries out in Latin, uh, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. And the words are plastered on the scoreboard in English as translation between an ad for Union 76 Oil and the best damn sports show ever. You know, I look around and there isn't a dry eye in the place. So don't tell me atheists hate everything. They don't. They hate evil and war and oppression and terror and AIDS. But eternity is in everybody's heart. And every, every generation has produced poets that get this and name this, and it awakens something in people. Peter, Paul, and Mary, Bob Dylan, Billy Joel, Dave Matthews, Beyonce, doesn't matter. And in film, same thing. And in deep love of God's creation, E.O. Wilson, great uh, biologist or marine biologist, Rachel, Rachel Carson, who in 1962 wrote Silent Spring to expose the links between pesticides and cancers. Uh, look, doesn't matter what her faith thing is, she knows don't, you know, pour toxic junk on the earth. Nobody wants it. So we have a, like a, a, mis, a misunderstanding of, of the fall of humanity that's led to a false belief among some sectors of Christianity, and this false belief says, hey, nothing true can come out of the mouths of those who don't have faith in Christ. Okay, I'm just going to say to you, that's rubbish. Like, 
People speak truth all the time who, who don't claim faith in Christ. But the result of that false way of thinking is a withdrawal from the world out of a posture that is strangely both arrogant and fearful at the same time. Like we withdraw and we're arrogant because we believe that we have the truth and nobody else does. But at the same time, we're afraid because we're afraid that if we get too close to the culture, it's going to pollute us somehow. And in reality, uh, as we'll see in the life of the Apostle Paul in just a moment here, when we become a student of culture, we learn that God's truths are articulated uh, through the longings in the human heart for beauty and intimacy and justice and hope and healing. And those longings are articulated all over the place. I mean, they're everywhere. So when... uh, Como News does a thing called Seattle is Dying, and it creates, you know, national attention. It wasn't made by a bunch of believers, necessarily. But, hello, I care about homelessness. I'm, sus- I'm suspicious you probably do, too. Care about homelessness and poverty and the increasing gap b- between... Uh, Wealth and poverty in our city and, and, and the effects of racism, mental illness, and drug addiction on, on a homeless problem. Like, where does our law to fix that come from? God, that's where. And everybody wants to fix it. And when Dave Matthews sings at the Gorge uh, Gray Street about a woman stuck in a stale marriage and doesn't know how to get out of it and, and, and is longing for intimacy... And, but everything, all the colors in her life continually turn to gray and she prays to God and God says, keep working on your dreams, sister. That's my paraphrase, but it's Dave Matthews. <laughs> and I look at the guy, the, 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 the lady sitting next to me, alone with two kids preteen, weeping, and I go, I wonder if this is her song. I don't have to know her faith condition to know She knows something's broken, if not in her, in the world. (laughs) And poets name that. So, whether it's Mozart at Safeco, or Dave Matthews at the Gorge, or the, you know, the opera for me, (laughs) Wednesday night, Cinderella, which is just this poignant reminder, those who marry for power are missing it. Everybody knows that. Poets name it, but it's God's truth. Does this make sense? So hear hear me, God's already at work in every human heart. So then the question becomes, okay, well then, you know, what's my calling as I walk with people in whom God is already at work? Brings me to my second truth, which is this. Uh, I need to look for truth everywhere. Everywhere I need to look for truth. So that's in Acts 17, verse 16, and Acts, 7, Acts 17 is our text this morning. Paul is on a missionary trip, and he's actually en route from one city to another, and he has a layover in, um, in Athens. He has a layover. Lay- I'll tell you what, layovers are valuable, man, for witnessing, uh, for being a witness. Like, I was five hours stuck one time in Bangkok, Thailand, and I ended up chatting with a guy who was, um, uh, he'd been in this cult in southern Oregon that is now a young life camp, right? It was Rajneesh, whatever his name was, right? And so he was, he was in thick with that, and before that, 
you know, he'd been at an ashram in India and blah, 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 blah. And he'd visited, he was visiting an ashram at the time. And so we were, we were five hours face to face. And I'm not, you know, I'm not pounding gospel into him, but I'm asking questions because he's longing for, he wants to worship and live in intimacy with the one who made him. He just doesn't know who that is, you know. We're talking a long time. And then he, we finish, and he goes, man, I'm actually enjoying this conversation. We wish we could talk a little bit more. We're seated next to each other on the plane. <laughs> uh, I don't know if he was really just saying that or not, but we talked, we talked another five hours, right, as we, on our flight to Tokyo. Paul's just, he's just, he's just there waiting around, but he's not just waiting around. While he's waiting in Athens for his buddies to show up, it says in chapter 17 of Acts, verse 16, he's, his spirit is being provoked as he's carefully observing a city full of idols. And carefully observing here, we know from the context, we, there's inscriptions on idols on a hillside called Mars Hill. So here's a hill, idol, 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 all kinds of idols. I mean, some of them are pornographic, right? Like they're, they're, they're phallic idols and there's idols to fertility goddesses and all that stuff. And Paul isn't like this, you know, he's reading every inscription. Carefully observe. Theodzimai is the Greek word. We get the word theater from it. So let me make a couple, I'll just make a couple observations. Observation number one, he's carefully observing the idols. Pay attention to your culture. Pay attention. Don't withdraw. And then observation number two, uh, in seeing their longings to worship, his spirit is provoked. This, this, his posture here reminds me of Jesus in Matthew 9. What does he say in Matthew 9? It says, he looked around, he saw that the people were like sheep without a shepherd, and it broke Jesus' heart. He felt great compassion for the crowds. Why? Because they're longing for freedom and intimacy and healing and dignity, and they don't have answers. And that's exactly the world we live in, right? People know that just going to work and filling up your bank account and, and buying experiences like a consumer is not enough, Everyone knows it. And so we want, we want more than that. We want intimacy, but for intimacy, sex is not enough. But we want meaning, but for meaning, work is not enough. But we want justice, but for justice, writing a check is not enough. So like how do we, like we want life to be different, we don't know how to do it. That's what Paul sees in, in these idols. They're, they want to worship. So listen, if I'm going to live as a person of hope in the culture without adopting the idols of the culture, two things I must have. Number one, if I'm going to, if I'm going to be a student of culture, so to speak, I must be rooted and grounded in Christ. I want you to get that word picture in your mind, rooted and grounded. What does it mean? It means that I am drawing my roots are deeply planted in Jesus. So I'm drawing on the resources of Christ's life. The, the, the narrative arc of history, the fall, the recovery of humanity, the cross, the resurrection, the end of all things, the summing up of all things in Christ, this drives me. That's why I wake up in the morning because the world is headed in a good direction by virtue of Christ. If I'm rooted and grounded in Christ, intimacy with Christ, gaining meaning from Christ... Then, as I look at culture, here's what will happen. I'll become, in culture, a person living with discernment. So that's, and that's the other thing I need. I need to be rooted 
So that now as this tree that I am in the culture, I'm living in the culture with discernment. Hebrews 5.14 defines Christian maturity not as withdrawal from culture, but defines maturity as having our senses trained to discern between good and evil. So I'm living in the world, not separate from the world, but this means I'm continually open to having idols revealed in my own heart. And the reality is, at least for me, sometimes the idols are revealed powerfully through film and literature because at times I become numb to the Bible. So, so for example, years ago I was reading one of my favorite books called The River Why. The first time I read The River Why by David James Duncan, I was on a kind of a vision quest trip with my son. We were in Colorado. We were hiking. We were mountain biking. We were climbing a little bit. He had a book he was reading. I had a book I was reading. And The River Why is not written that I know necessarily by somebody who claims faith. Maybe so. Here's the point. Uh, The book revealed to me idols of materialism and individualism. I remember reading the book and going, man, I'm greedy. I'm afraid for my financial future. I hoard. And I don't like people. (laughs) I withdraw too often. I need community. I know all that from this Bible, but sometimes poets and artists shake us awake. Does that make sense? So the musical cabaret, another example. I saw it here years ago. I think it was the Paramount or Fifth Avenue. And when the, when the curtain dropped at the end of the first act and the chorus is singing live as a cabaret and at the same time, the curtain drops and what, what you see on the curtain is the Nazi flag. And then, and then you see uh, the, the, the soldiers right behind it and you hear a Hitler speech going on. The dissonance of life as a cabaret and this suffering kind of revealed to me my own tendency to disengage from uh, the, the suffering of the world and create my own cabaret. Hamilton, Rent, Wicked, Forrest Gump, Shakespeare, writings of Native Americans. I don't have time to tell you how profoundly I've been shaped by all these things. Why? Because there's truth there. But you must be rooted and grounded in Christ and live with discernment. Otherwise, those things can become idols that will then destroy you. (laughs) So it only works if discernment is a value. And then finally, here's what we see. Paul builds bridges, Acts 17, 22. So he's read these these inscriptions on the idols, and then the people are like this. We want to hear more about what you're saying. So he's given a chance to speak in the Areopagus. The Areopagus would be um, like the, the... town meeting center. Think Red Square at UW, right? So he's going to be in the, like right in the center where people pass around ideas. And what he does there, I love the way that Paul approaches uh, his speaking with people who are spiritually hungry but don't know Jesus. Here's where he starts. He starts with commonality rather than differences. In other words, what does he say? He says, hey, men of Athens, uh, You're sinners, and you're headed for hell. No, he doesn't say that. He says, men of Athens, I observe you're spiritual in every way. In other words, oh, you're looking for meaning? I'm looking for meaning too. Let me tell you what I found. 
We start by building bridges, not by uh, uh, separating and showing distinctions. And then he begins to offer answers to their longings. This is what he says in verse 23. He says, oh, I notice you guys have all these idols, and as I'm reading, you, have an, you even have an idol to the unknown God. I have very good news. The God that you don't know, I happen to know who that God is, and I'm here to tell you about that God. So he's, he's offering answers to their questions, not answers to his questions. And if I'm going to share faith, I will only share faith to the extent that I know the questions you're asking. Otherwise, I will answer questions you're not asking and then so be viewed as irrelevant. Which is, by the way, why some people are driving by right now. That, because that's how we're viewed. So then, it goes on, and again, on this theme of commonality, he declares in verses 26 and 27 that we all have a common origin. I'm Jewish. Uh, you're Greek. I'm a citizen of Rome. You may hate the Romans because you're now in occupied territory just like the Jews are. But guess what? We all come from the same creator, verse 26 and 27. This God, this unknown God, made all of us. And then, this is where it really gets stunning to me. Rather than pointing to Christ by quoting the Bible, he points them to Christ by quoting Greek poetry. He says, uh, God has desired that we seek God, verse 27, if perhaps we might grope for him and find him, though God is not far from any of us, verse 28, for in God we live and move and exist, even as your own poets have said, and then quoting Greek poetry, he says, we are the children of God, we're the offspring of God. So when Paul speaks to the Galatians, because they're Jewish, he quotes the Old Testament. When he speaks to the Romans, because they're a mixed congregation of Jews and Roman citizens, he quotes the Old Testament, but the structure of the book is Roman uh, legal rhetoric, right? So when I'm with the Romans, I'm speaking to, to Romans. When I'm with the Galatians, who are Jewish, I'm speaking from the Old Testament. And when I'm with the Athenians who don't know the Old Testament or new, I'm not talking old or new. I'm talking Greek poetry. As your own poets have said, and he uses that poetry to invite people then to turn to the source, their creator. And the word turn is, verse 30, the word repentance. That's what turn means. And this, I'm just going to observe, is the kind of bridge building that is fun in life. It's the kind of bridge building we're called to do. If Paul were a fundamentalist over here, our original problem, Bible only, he just have quoted the Bible. That's all he'd have done. And if they didn't understand, he'd quote, this is what I do if you're ever in a foreign country and you're speaking English and they don't understand, so you speak slower and louder. Hello? No help, Right? Quoting the Bible to those who don't care doesn't work if we quote more Bible or louder Bible. If, on the other hand, Paul was like culture only, he would have quoted Greek poetry but never pointed to Christ. But he's not culture only, he's not Bible only. He's the presence of Jesus. 
So he's with them. Oh, you read Greek poetry? That's where we start. Oh, you have an idol? That's where we start. But he points them to Christ. This is the third way. So you've got a newspaper in one hand, Bible in the other. And why is this so important? Because listen, almost everyone knows the world is broken, right? Everyone. Shakespeare knew it. Kanye knows it. <laughs> everyone longs for beauty and meaning and justice and intimacy. Spielberg longs for all those things. So does Lady Gaga. So does Mozart. So, so people, people know it's broken, but they don't know why. And, and, and people know we're made for beauty and meaning and justice, but they don't know how to get there. And we're sitting on answers. Don't sit. Be light. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine. <laughs> Build bridges. By becoming students of God's redemptive story and students of culture. And if we need to learn to do this here, we will. Because <laughs> this is really, really important. Years ago, I was at... Um, the Sun, Sun Mountain Lodge, you know it, it's Eastern Washington, it's kind of a cross-country ski mecca. I was there for, uh, you guys gave my wife and I a gift, our 10th anniversary at Bethany. So I was there, and I happened to be reading a book by uh, Herman Hess called uh, Goldman and Narcissus at the time. Now, I don't, I don't generally read many, uh, like, books about church growth and church health and stuff like that. I just don't, they're boring to me. But I, I, I like literature. I just happen to like literature. So I'm reading this book. And, the, and the, uh, the waiter comes and he sees the book on the table. He says, I'm reading that same book. Now, what are the odds, right? Goldman and Narcissus. So when he brings the food, I go, hey, I'm just curious. How far are you in? You know, we sort of talk about the book. I said, who are you? Are you Goldman or Narcissus? He said, oh, I'm Goldman. I said, oh, interesting. I, I was Narcissus. That's what I said, I was Narcissus until I found Christ. He said, what do you, what do you, mean, by, what is, what do you mean by that? And then I, you know, I was able to say, oh, you know, Narcissus, he's, he, he's the religious one who finds no satisfaction in religion. And that was me. And then my dad died. And dun, 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 dun. I'd love to tell you that he just started weeping and said, I want to be a believer right now. That didn't happen. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not called to save anybody. Eh? Jesus saves. I am called to sow seeds of hope. Oh, by the way, so are you. That guy, this is what I knew by the end of our time. He had a hunger for meaning and intimacy. And he knew that Christ was a possibility he'd never considered before. Uh, what's your hunger this morning? That's the question that turns us to this table. Because if we don't have any hungers ourselves, we don't have a story. And if we don't have a story, we don't have a bridge to build. What's your hunger? For freedom from addiction? Uh, for eyes 
to see beauty because you too know someone whose days are numbered, like my friend Sean? Uh, For words of hope for a friend? (laughs) Jesus said this, if you're hungry, come and eat, and I will be your satisfaction. And then this bread that is now your life, you will be able to share freely with others. So we come to this table, and as the servers come now, we're going to be receiving communion. Allow me to pray as we approach the table. Father, as these servers come now, we want to pray uh, that uh, you would awaken in our hearts the vulnerability and honesty to name our own hunger. We're not, we're not here just because this is a ritual of some sort, though we may be. Maybe that's the only reason. But my prayer, Father, is that we would know our hunger. We're hungry because we're afraid of growing old. We're hungry because we're losing a loved one. We're hungry because our marriage hangs by a thread. We're hungry because uh, we're aware of our own greed. We're hungry because of our hidden addiction that nobody knows about. And you, you are our strength. You are our satisfaction. You are our source. We come to you now. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, after he'd given thanks, he took the bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When you receive the bread this morning, you receive this this, um, presence of Christ that is your satisfaction, but satisfying only to the extent that you are honest enough to be hungry. So name your hunger as the plate is passed, and with a word of thanks, receive the bread. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Drink all of it. Uh, Yes, we blow it. Yes, we default back into idols. (laughs) Yes, we're forgiven. Every day, new mercies. Receive forgiveness, receive strength and satisfaction. So this is what we do as we gather here this morning. I'll invite you to take the bread individually Hold the cup, we'll receive it together, signifying our unity in Christ. All the bread is gluten-free. There's nothing to worry about unless you need gluten. (laughs) And then enjoy later today. Red Mill or something like that. All right. Let's worship together.